Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to sit under your words. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would anoint Catherine as she teaches it to us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. 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 And I'm passionate about teaching. Tonight, I want to talk, uh, uh, meditate, really, on a truth of scripture. Um, Scott made me give a title about five minutes before we left our house. So this is the title I gave, The Mystery That Leads to Maturity, Christ in You. Several years ago, I saw a woman at Whole Foods hanging up an ad for spiritual guidance. Uh, sessions that she was going to provide, some kind of group meditation. So I'm always looking for a chance to start a conversation with people like that. So I just walked up and I said, tell me what you do in your sessions. And so she told me that in her sessions, they would get quiet um, and she would get in touch with her soul and let the good come forward. So I said, well, what if good doesn't come forward? Have you ever had that happen? where it's not good that comes forward. Like, what if you can't forgive somebody and that's the first thing that comes forward when you get quiet? She said, that's a hard one. I have an ex-husband I'm trying to forgive. I guess you just keep working at it. So I ventured, well, I'm a Christian and we have meditation too, but our meditation is really about someone from the outside coming in to our lives And bringing forward the bad, but giving us something in exchange, which is himself and life. And listen to what she said. Yeah, I grew up evangelical. And I always felt there was something they weren't telling me. That's why I started looking into other forms of spirituality. And I was, oh, Lord, help me here. You know, I said, you know, there probably was something they weren't telling you. It was the mystery you were looking for. You were looking for the supernatural. You didn't want just a a standard of behavior that felt impossible. You wanted a supernatural life. And I said, sometimes Christians don't even know the mystery of their own gospel. The only way the Christian life works is if we enter into the core of the mystery, which is that Jesus Christ comes to live in you. So tonight I want to meditate together on this mystery of our faith, Christ in you. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? No other religion claims that. So the passage I want to look at tonight is in Colossians. So if you could open up your Bibles to Colossians 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 24 through uh, the first few verses of chapter 2. So Colossians 1, verse 24 and forward. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, To make the word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, 
but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul says that he has given his life, that he's currently suffering so that he could present these Colossians and, and all the people he was ministering to mature in Christ. He said, my mission is to teach you how you can come into maturity. And he wants to uh, ask for this revelation of the mystery of the gospel. Now, I have a very, very dear friend, one of the best friends a person can have. And she's bright, she's talented, she's funny, she's alive. I can converse on so many levels with her. But she probably faced the, the biggest tsunami of a, that's possible in a person's life. And I have accompanied this for years with her. And I am amazed at how rooted and stable she has been in the face of all this betrayal and suffering and court cases. And I thought, how? Cancer. It, cancer, yeah, on top of it all. And I, um, you know, sometimes you cry out to the Lord on behalf of your friends, like, Lord, how much can a person take? Um, and every time I talk to her, you know what I hear in her? The hope of glory. The hope of glory. Wow. She has discovered the mystery of Christ in her. The hope of glory. She can look horrible things in the face and say, this is not my full story. And one of her children said to her, you know, I, I can't see a good ending to our story. I said, what did you say? And she said, I said, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. I know Jesus, and the end of our story is glory. How can we be mature like that? That takes a lot of maturity. Well, one, for one thing, this friend of mine is constantly in the word of God. She's just living in the word of God. And so always she's asking Lord, and, and this is not, she's not a robot. She cries, she is angry, but she always comes back to that equilibrium of 
the Lord is faithful and he's doing good to me. And she's always so grateful for all the things he's doing. But we desire to be mature like that. We desire to have that level of maturity. And we exhaust ourselves sometimes trying to change, striving to change, to be more like Christ, to follow him. In this passage, Paul holds out that secret to becoming mature, to becoming holy. This is the mystery that makes it all work. Without it, we only have the whole or the shell, the form without the content. The mystery is Jesus, and specifically Jesus in you or Jesus in me. This is our hope of glory. This is our hope for maturity. This is our hope for the besetting sin that plagues us. This is our hope for being presented blameless before the Lord. It's Christ's ministry to make you holy. And instead of just saying, here, this is how you need to behave, go for it. I'm here to cheer you on. He says, no, I'll, I'll just come into you and actually do it in you. So what I need you to do is say yes and make space for me. He knows that you can't love difficult people. He knows that you can't think yourself out of anxiety. He knows that you can't forgive someone who continues to hurt you. He knows you can't even make yourself feel different. Our treasure is Christ himself. Any gospel that takes this mystery out is a hollow gospel that can't save anyone. Now, this is why Paul warns us about people deluding us with plausible arguments. Anyone who is ashamed of Jesus as our only way of being saved and tries to preach a gospel of just goodness or love that has no mystery of the treasures of Jesus in it, that supernatural ministry of Jesus to live in us, is a false teacher. You cannot be a believer without Jesus and without his saving power. You can't live the Christian life. You can't make it to the end. Jesus makes us worthy. And he is the mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, read this book in Colossians. I mean, when he goes into this song about who Jesus is and the preeminence of Christ, you're just... Like, that's the Jesus that's coming to live in me? I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. It takes revelation to realize. Rosalind Goforth uh, is the wife of Jonathan Goforth, the famed missionary to China uh, who lived through the Boxer Rebellion. They, were, they ministered to the Chinese um, through the loss of five children that they buried in China. Countless threats and persecutions and uh, Rosalind, near the end of her life, wrote a book, uh, a biography about her husband called Climbing. And, in, and near the end of the book, she tells this story that really struck me years ago as um, we were starting out in ministry. She tells the story of attending a conference uh, when she was on furlough in which the speaker described the life of the average believer. And I'm going to read uh, just some a paragraph in here. He drew simply but vividly, first a picture of an ordinary, all too common Christian life. If he had drawn the picture from my everyday life experience, he could not have given it other than he did. Sometimes on the mountaintop with visions of God and his mighty power, then the sagging, the dimming of vision, coldness, discouragement, even definite disobedience and a time of downgrade experience. 
Again, through some sorrow or trial, there would come a return in seeking of the Lord with, again, the higher Christian experiences in a word and up-and-down life of intermingled victory and defeat. Then the speaker asked if anyone uh, really wanted to live a different kind of Christian life to hold up their hands, and she said that she really, she was sitting in the front row, she thought, man, everybody behind me knows that I've been a missionary in China for years, but hey, I gotta be honest. <laughs> so she lifted her hand up. And so then she talks about how he painted a picture of what the, the scripture describes as a normal Christian life. And this Christian life that God had not only planned for his children, but had also made abundant provision for living it. The following morning, I rose early. On my knees, I read from the list of scriptures that he had given us, all the texts. Before I had gone halfway down the list, I saw clearly God's word taught beyond the shadow of a doubt that the overcoming victorious life in Christ is the normal life God has planned for his children. Now, this does not mean, I mean, she's somebody who lived through the box of rebellion, right? So she's not saying you won't have suffering, that's totally part of it, or that you won't have sadness or anguish, but that that trajectory of your life is toward victory, even from those moments of sadness that you meet the Lord and you're transformed. So she goes on this quest, how can I have that life? What's the secret to that life? And the Lord leads her to this pamphlet, and she said she is reading this pamphlet and comes to this line, at last I realized that Jesus Christ was actually and literally within me. I stopped amazed. The sun seemed sudden to come from under a cloud and flood my soul with light. How blind I had been. I saw as in a flash the secret of victory. It was just Jesus Christ himself. So then she goes, um, to talk to a dear friend and, and says, have I missed this my whole life? What, what's going on here? And he looks at her and says, Mrs. Goforth, I am amazed, amazed that you have only now come to apprehend this truth of Christ's indwelling. It is the holy of holies of our Christian faith. Well, we should feel in good company if we're with Rosalind Goforth. <laughs> that she lived that life of service to the Lord and was still discovering this truth because this is a truth that takes a lifetime to discover. We have that dilemma of what Christ promises for the Christian and what we, in general, live. And why? Because we have lost the holy of holies of the Christian faith. Christ in me. The extent to which we live in this truth, we claim it, we practice it, we embrace it, is the extent that we will experience that transformational life. So how have we lost it? I think some of it comes from a faulty view of salvation. Uh, we view salvation as a choice we've made, or we see it as a one-time event, or we see it as a mental ascent to a list of truths. But belief is not a mental ascent or a one-time event. Salvation is much more than agreeing to certain dogmas. So much more than my mind has to be saved. So much more than my mind. 
My mind may be the entry point or my feeling being, or, but salvation means Christ in me, in all of me, in my imagination, in my feeling being, in my appetites, in my mind, in my body, where I wage war always against sin. This is where I have to have the indwelling work of Christ. Once we open our hearts to Jesus and then we're baptized, born of water and the spirit into a new family, a new inheritance, baptism means so much when you realize, oh, I'm getting new genes. I'm coming into a family where I actually am being given new genes to live the Christian life. And that first fruits of the inheritance, it says, which is the Holy Spirit, you have this huge inheritance. Your future is covered. But hey, just while you're waiting around for that to be fulfilled, I'm going to give you the first fruits. God. Wow. Oswald Chambers says, eternal life is the gift of God. God, you are given God as eternal life. So this Holy Spirit comes into us and ministers salvation to us minute by minute. Salvation is something God does. The scriptures teach, teach we were saved, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. All of those tenses of the verb are used in scripture. So all of these, uh, this need for salvation is covered in the history of my life. Steve Tessick, a Czech American playwright, not a believer, I think perhaps understands this better than a lot of Christians. Stuart and I got to see this play called On the Open Road. These two characters in the play, Al and Angel, are um, trying to get into the promised land. And they stumble on a girl who's been raped and severely mistreated, who is lying on some railroad tracks. And Angel saves her from an oncoming train. And then he wants to carry her into the promised land. And Al, the guy that's with him, tries to knock some sense into him. And this is their dialogue. Al says, you saved your life. You've done your part. Now drop, a, drop her. Let's go. And Angel, but then it was all for nothing. What did I save her life for if I'm just going to drop her now? Al so you can learn an important lesson. Saved her life? <laughs> Does she look saved? You think that's all it takes? One shot salvation? There, I've done it. Now on to the next one. Do you have any idea the kind of love it takes to save somebody? Especially these little ones. She'll need to be saved every hour of every day over and over again for years and years. Are you willing to do that? Jesus is willing to do that. Amen. He's the only one who can do it. Amen. But Steve Tessich got, got it. That's what we need is salvation every single moment of the day. So how does he do this? He doesn't die on the cross every day and rise again every day, again and over and over again. He comes into me and his death and resurrection become operative in me moment by moment. He comes to live within me. His life is now being lived in me. 
John 14, 18 to 23. Again, if you just want to meditate on this Christ in you, John 14 is a beautiful passage to do that in. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And if you're someone who has had trouble with home or you've wandered your whole life or home is painful, this is one of the most beautiful promises. As he comes and makes his home with you. Jesus moves in with us. Now that's a total disruption to time, schedule, sleeping arrangements, patterns, reactions. This is not a picture of living someone in which you live parallel lives, like making separate meals, having over different sets of friends, passing by in the hallway. No, this is sharing life with the one you live with. Dialogue, making coffee together, preparing food and sitting down to eat it together, reading something in the paper and reflecting on your reactions to it. This kind of shared life is how he makes his home with us for the intention of making our Christian life possible. He lives his life in us. We can have a conversion and even baptism, but then live parallel lives with Jesus, never accessing the inheritance he offers to make our Christian life an abundant, transformational, and vibrant one. Imagine an event in which a speaker's invited, but through the uh, invited to speak, but throughout the evening, he's never even acknowledged and never given the platform to speak. One could say he was at the event and he was invited, but since he was not acknowledged and no one benefited or was able to receive from what he had to offer, it really wasn't like he was there. Christ in me means that I give Christ my body as a home where he can speak move, change, inhabit me on many levels so that I'm actually also living in him. And that's that beautiful thing where it talks about abiding in him and he will abide in you. So you're, you're dwelling together. So I want to talk about what this looks like practically. How do I choose to abide with Christ as he abides with me? And there are three ways I want to touch on. One is practicing the presence of Christ. It's, it's actually a renewal of your mind and your understanding. The other one is the practice of obedience. And the third one is the practice of belief. So of what do you practice the presence? So when your mind gets totally, like if you were to do meditation with that lady from Whole Foods and you got quiet, what is the first awareness that comes to you? What is the presence that you're practicing? Is it an opinion of somebody else? Is it some view of yourself that's constantly present, maybe a sick view of yourself? Is it a voice of someone in your past? You always know what they're thinking. Self-hatred, self-doubt, despair, the pleasure of others. Or do you practice the presence of the real, what Christ has told you is real about you? So you can start from that place of 
Christ in me, the hope of glory, that is what I need to learn to practice. I need to practice that, that awareness. It's kind of like when I've been pregnant, and I wasn't constantly aware that another lived in me, especially early on, your body isn't changing too much, you know, and um, you're just, you feel a little sick, but I would have to discipline myself to nurture that one and to be aware, oh, I'm pregnant. I probably shouldn't ride horses right now, you know? I probably shouldn't drink too much. I don't anyway, but, you know, these kinds of things that they tell you you should be really aware of. Don't eat dangerous foods. Get a lot of sleep. Eat a lot of protein. This kind of thing. It's, that's practicing the presence of another being that's in you. And practicing the presence of God is like building a muscle. You are building your awareness of the truth of Christ being in you. Now, the reality of like a baby inside of you, it fluctuates. Um, and, and as the baby grows, and there is a good analogy here, as the baby grows, you can't ignore the fact that you have another living in you. Right, Marissa? <laughs> <laughs> We need this growing awareness of Christ's presence in us. We live in a materialistic world where what is seen is what is real. So we have to discipline ourselves to be present to that unseen reality of the presence of Christ. So what do you do in your daily life to align yourself, to ensure that you're aligning yourself with what's real on a regular basis? Um, I'm sure some of you have read the book by Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. This is often where I think we've gotten this phrase, practice the presence of God. He had a job. He became a monk, and he thought, I'm going to pray all day. This is so exciting. This is what I want to do. And then he was given the job of washing dishes all day and all evening. And he hated washing dishes. He hated it. Moment by moment, he learned to discipline himself, to be conscious of God's presence with him and to do what he was doing out of love for God. So he took that time where he would be washing dishes in the total boredom of it to learn to practice the presence of God. Je Jesus is here with me. What would he say to me? You know, let me reflect on him and his presence in me and with me and let me do this dirty dish out of love for him. Oswald Chambers says, it is the dull, bald, dreary, commonplace day with commonplace duties and people that kills the burning heart unless we have learned the secret of abiding in Jesus. Isn't that true? The commonplace day, that's what wears you down, just the drudgery. But when you learn that secret of abiding in Jesus and practicing his presence, it transforms even those mundane tasks. I've been learning, even after years of walking with Jesus, on a new level to be able to be with Jesus in whatever I'm experiencing. If I'm in pain, asking Jesus simply to abide with me in that pain, and then be present and comfort me and speak to me in that pain. If I'm angry, asking Jesus to come present to me in my anger and speak to me, what's at the root of this? Where is this coming from? What does Jesus have to say to me about this anger? If I'm anxious, what would Jesus reveal about himself to me? I love the story of Isaiah in his, it seems like his anxiety after King Uzziah died, 
right? There's gonna be this political shift. Does it sound familiar? Like we don't know what's gonna happen politically. And I just love that passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. What vision would God give us of himself as we face political turmoil? If we could only abide with him in our inner upheaval, just be with him in it, do we come present to Christ in our circumstances to order our reflections and our reactions and our fears? Brother Lawrence found that he had to practice the presence of God rather than the presence of people. Doesn't mean he wasn't with people. People traveled to meet this man and to learn from him. But he realized that it was easy to practice the presence of other people's thoughts or ideas or, or opinions. What dialogues are going on in your head? I know I constantly have dialogues going on in my head. What dialogues go on in your head? Are you practicing the responses of people on social media? Anticipating what they will think or respond? Do you have someone's opinion in your head that orders your thoughts? How present are you to the Lord's opinions, to the Lord's concerns, to the vision of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this earth? We call this practicing the presence of God because it is that exercise that engages the will. It's muscle development. I remember hearing a missionary speak, and she said, whenever I'm waiting in line at the grocery and I look over at the magazines and I see some kind of news, I pray for that person. That's practicing the presence of God in the grocery store. Is always turning. We do this in our family when, uh, when an ambulance goes by. Let's pray for that person. You know, these are just little ways that we practice the presence of God with us in the moment. This means when you have mental or imaginative space throughout your day to become aware of what fills it. That would be the first thing I'd say. You have imaginative space, quiet space. What fills that space? And just simply bring your attention back to the Lord and his presence in you. When we realize that we've been living outside of Christ, not practicing his presence, our tendency is to shame ourselves, right? Oh my goodness, I feel so guilty, I feel so horrible. But um, what we need to learn, what Brother Lawrence learned is just say, I'm sorry, Lord, and just come right back into his presence. Don't spend time on being living in shame. That's never gonna get you anywhere. Andrew Murray, in his wonderful book, Abide in Christ, which I totally recommend uh, over and over again, he talks about our human desire to get into a state that will last, will stick, instead of learning to abide in Christ for this moment. I want to have an experience that makes me feel permanently better, rather than learning to grow in my capacity moment by moment to live in the life of Christ. This is Eucharistic living, right? This is give us this day our daily bread. And as a friend of mine likes to say to me, this isn't bread in the freezer, Catherine. You're asking for bread in the freezer. It's not bread in the freezer. This is daily bread. Be creative with ways to remind you to practice God's presence. Crucifixes, icons, candles, music that takes you to the Lord, fasting, uh, prayer book prayers throughout the day. The seasons of the year help us with this, right? That's a beautiful way. If necessary, if you're a person who has a lot of anxiety at night, sleep with a cross. 
so that when you awaken, you're, oh, oh, the Lord is with me. Use negative emotions as alarms for needing to move back into the presence of God. <clears throat> if I do not abide in Christ for a day, this doesn't mean that I lose my salvation. It means I'm not drawing from Jesus the abundant life that saves me moment by moment, that makes me more and more like Jesus. So that practicing of the presence of Christ, and there's so much more that could be said about that, and I'm sure you have so many ideas and things you already do. But I want to talk about practicing obedience. Uh, the verses I read from John 14 said that to have that shared home, I have to obey God's word. It says, if you obey me and obey my words, my, my father and I will come to you and make our home in you. So that is what gives Jesus the platform to do his work. John 15 says that to bear fruit, to grow, to live the Christian life, I must remain in Christ. And then it says we remain in Christ's love by obedience. But here's the beautiful mystery. How do we obey? By Christ in us, living his life in us. He even makes it possible for us to obey. Have you ever been in a situation? I was in a situation where I was so angry at somebody who really wronged me. And uh, I felt like the Lord said to me, Catherine, you are a Christian. You can forgive this person. I was like, no, I can't. That's right. I, I can do this through you. Will you just let me? I'm like, that's right. You, Lord, I forgive that person. I choose to forgive. And I just felt the, the life of God enabling me to do it. This happens all the time in my life, whether it's I need an idea for this. Lord, help me. Come with this, this idea that I need. Um, and I, and I, I feel that stirring of the Spirit in my life available to me to help me. My kids know that when I would just reach a point of total exasperation, I would just go, help me, Lord, you've got to help me right now. And they'd be like, she's praying, she's praying, be quiet, be quiet. Um, <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> but I, I'm like, come into this right now. One time I had two kids crying at the same time. And I was like, Lord, you're going to have to hold one of them. And instantly, the, one of them stopped crying. So if I'm seeking to obey Jesus and he tells me to forgive somebody, you, you just say, Lord, you've got to do it in me. you got to do it through me. I can't do that. And then you step out in faith. Um, this idea of obeying and then finding the love of Christ, too, that makes you able to obey or empowers you to obey. Um, there's a great example of this in Out of the Salt Shaker by Becky Pippard, a great IV pillar. Uh, she went to resurrection for several years. And um, advice from Becky was to this woman who said, you know what, I believe in Jesus in my mind, but I'm not, I, I don't have any feelings about it, or, or I don't really see any change in my life. And do you know what Becky told her? Okay, I want you to read a portion of scripture every day and ask for God to give you an opportunity to obey that scripture. Just say, give me an opportunity to obey that scripture. What would happen is a circumstance would unfold and she'd be like, oh my goodness, this is a scripture I read about. Okay, I'm gonna obey it. And all of a sudden, this life began to be stirred in her, this life in the Lord. And she saw 
the, the activation of the Holy Spirit in her life as she obeyed. So if, uh, if we are struggling with obedience, we are going to struggle with allowing the presence of Jesus to manifest himself in us and through us. So how do I grow in my capacity to obey? We practice belief. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There it is again, Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, that's all of us every day, the life we're living in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live this life by faith. I realize now I've had three quotes by Oswald Chambers. Um, wow, I haven't quoted him in a long time, but here's, here it is again. Why are you not a saint? It is either that you do not want to be a saint or that you do not believe God can make you one. Not believing not wanting to be a saint could stem from that realization that I must engage my will. It's not just going to happen to me. It requires my engagement. But not believing God can make me a saint seems to be a big trip up for all of us as Christians. Um, not believing God can make me a saint will always keep me from becoming one. Because unbelief will prevent God working his abundant life in me. Why is this? Well, have you ever noticed that all the promises in Scripture are accompanied with a little phrase, if you believe? If you believe. So the promise, people who say, oh, that didn't come true for me, it's like, well, most likely, <laughs> if you're saying that, you haven't entered into that dialogue with the Lord uh, and belief around this promise. Not, uh, oops, in my life, I've had to do that over and over again. Years ago, I didn't believe God could use me. I didn't believe that God would love me as he loved others. I did not believe that I could find inner freedom. I didn't believe that if God walked in a room, I believed he'd pass me by. And someone challenged me with that and said, you have to change your attitude. Like, oh. So she said, start by confessing your unbelief. That's just unbelief. So I did. And she said, you're probably going to have to do it several times a day. I'm like, okay, all right, I'm in for it. Do you know that even that, it takes, what, three weeks, they say, to, to change a habit? I started seeing a change because I would say, oh, Lord, I confess my unbelief. I didn't believe that you could treat me like a, the daughter of a king. I confess, I unbelief. Lord, I didn't believe that you could actually change this thing in me. Help my unbelief. And that process of, of confessing unbelief began to change me. When I'm practicing the presence of doubt and unbelief, I'm not appropriating the life of Christ, which is one I appropriate through faith. It doesn't mean that doubt can't be a dialogue you're having with the Lord, but the, the point of your doubt, right, is ultimate connection with the Lord. If that becomes the thing where you're camped out, you're going to miss uh, the faith that the Lord wants to give you. Years ago, uh, Madeline, I didn't have time to ask if I could tell this little story. So I think you'll be okay with it because you probably don't even remember it. My daughter Madeline came in this afternoon. <laughs> Years ago, when a family member we loved very dearly was self-destructing, 
uh, Madeline, who was, I don't know, six, maybe, maybe she was eight, she said to me anxiously, God needs to speak to him and tell him to start loving Jesus. And I responded, God is speaking to him. He just can't hear it. Then Madeline said, he can't hear it because he doesn't believe that Jesus is standing right next to him. If he did believe that, he would hear him. I thought, the mouth of babes, right? <laughs> is Jesus standing next to you? Is he even within you speaking a word, but you can't hear it because you don't believe he's there? That unbelief will be what keeps you from that abundant life. Choose to believe all the promises given to us. It's clear in the scriptures that the promises are for those who believe. Read the scriptures and personalize Jesus' words. He says, you are the light of the world. Then dialogue with Jesus about it. I don't feel like the light of the world. I'm not really a light. I'm kind of a damper. I feel like a cloud of depression. Jesus, make this true of me. Make me light. I receive your light into my darkness. Andrew Murray in, again, Abide in Christ, speaks of needing to develop in our Christian life a trustful disposition towards God. Amy Carmichael calls it choosing never to be offended by God. Wow, that's maturity. Never to be offended by God. So Andrew Murray says, he speaks of needing to develop a trustful disposition towards God. The habit the habit of always thinking of him, of his ways and of his works with bright, confiding hopefulness. In such soil alone can the individual promises strike root and grow up. I'm going to read that one more time. He speaks of needing to develop a trustful disposition towards God, the habit of always thinking of him, and of his ways and his works with bright, confiding hopefulness. In such soil alone can the individual promises strike root and grow up. We all know how hard it is to have a trustful disposition to the Lord. You can be a believer your whole life and something happens in your life and you doubt the Lord. Do you, are you really good? Are, really? Are you, is my best in your heart? what you want to do for me, is, is that there? And, and if that happens to you, even though you're a mature Christian, it's just another opportunity to develop a trustful disposition towards God, the hope of glory. Murray talks of how we as believers think God has to reveal his truth first to our intellects and afterward in our experience. And he says God's way is contrary to that. He says, we must live and experience truth in order to know it. So this is his, his little recommendation. Receive what you do not comprehend. Submit to what you cannot understand. Accept and expect what to reason appears a mystery. Believe what looks impossible. Walk in a way which you don't know. Such are the first lessons in the school of God. Walking believing. Jesus, you said it, I believe it, and I trust you. The way we can live with questions and disappointments is believing that ultimately Jesus is always the answer. 
you know, kids who are like, you know, think that if they just say Jesus, when any question is asked in Sunday school, you know, that's the right answer. Well, it is. It is. Unless they said something like, you know, something horrible, like. <laughs> um, Jesus's life will be enough. It is heart, it, um, it is his heart's desire to share his kingdom and his glory with you. It says, it is the Father's desire to give you a kingdom. I believe that. It is in him, as Colossians said, that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In uh, Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, after Oriole has lived a life always feeling like God did her wrong, always feeling like this complaint against God. And she gives this litany of complaint about her life. And then she has this end-of-the-life realization, and this is what she says. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer, and before your face, all questions die away. You can live with questions. How can you live with questions? Because you have Jesus. You can live with those tensions and those mysteries because he's in you, and he knows, and he He's infinite. He encompasses all of those things. And so I can walk in faith if I believe that he loves me and he's rescued me and that he's preeminent. So what seems more real in your life than the presence of Christ? What seems more true to you than Christ in you? Where do we need a revelation of the mystery of Christ in us? It's supernatural. It's like a supernatural revelation of Christ in us. As Paul says, he wants your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches. He just wants us to know the riches. Isn't that great? And Paul is like, I just want you to know the riches, the treasures of Jesus that that he's enough, he's cosmically enough for everything in your life, and he extends into the future and into your past. He wants us to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Christ is yours. If you've been born again, he lives in you. All of his life is yours, his kingdom, his treasures, his riches. They're yours.